How do you become a billionaire by starting companies? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm Greg Gallant, and today I interview Sam Wiley. Sam's a difficult guy to introduce just because he started so many notable companies. His first company he started when he was in his 20s called University Computing. Basically, it was extremely expensive to buy a computer back then, so he allowed people to rent time on a computer instead of having to buy their own or have their company buy their own computer. Worked out very well. He IPO'd it. That's what set him off on his path. But in addition to that, he started a number of other companies and backed a number of other companies, including an oil company, Earth Resources, Sterling Software, another software company that did very well in the 90s, Maverick Capital, a very successful hedge fund, Bonanza Steakhouses, Michael Stores, and most recently Green Mountain Energy, a green company. In addition to this, through his various companies, he's mounted various takeover attempts. He tried to take over AT&T. It didn't work, but he talks about that. He tried to take over CA. That didn't work, but it exposed a lot of problems there. And he's also successfully acquired several larger companies than his own, including Informatics. So really fascinating story. He also just came out with a book, $1,000 and an Idea. I highly recommend you buy it. Sam's very open about his successes and his failures. Net-net, it left him a billionaire. So it's a treat to have him on the show. If you listen to Venture Voice, you know that cash flow is one of the biggest challenges in starting your business, which is why I'm excited to announce that our new sponsor is FreshBooks. FreshBooks is actually a service that I use. It's an online invoicing service. It makes invoicing really easy. It really lets me focus on doing these interviews because I can very quickly send out invoices, track who's paid them and who hasn't. Their basic service is free. It only takes a couple minutes to set up. If you want to use a premium package of FreshBooks, you can get $20 off just by going to VentureVoice.com and clicking on the FreshBooks logo to find out more. Sam, welcome to Venture Voice. Well, thank you, Greg. I'm um, glad to be here. <laughs> so, Sam, I, I really enjoyed your book. I'd love to just start from the top. I found uh, I found it interesting. You started talking um, about your family, came from a modest background. You you'd mentioned in the book that your family even had some economic troubles. So, you know, I was curious. So many, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of get their start with the with the lemonade stand or whatever venture it is. Some start later. Can you tell me just a little bit about kind of your childhood and if if you kind of had inklings as an entrepreneur or if you were just, uh, if that came later in life? Well, I grew up uh, in a small town and uh, on a cotton farm um, in um, North Louisiana. And um, people had been, had been there for generations uh, going back to the, early 1800s, um, actually got to this country. Uh, I guess my first Scottish grandma got here the uh, same year as George Washington's great-grandfather. So we're basically the story of America, of the people uh, crossing the ocean and um, gradually uh, sort of each generation or so moving um, 20 miles to 40 miles further west. And uh, um, my dad and mother both um, went to uh, LSU at uh, um, my mother wanted to be a dancer, so she uh, came back to 
our little town from our, our college and went to the local banker and um, borrowed the money that she needed to go to New York City um, to study dancing. Actually, the year was 1929. Um, I later asked her if she knew about the great market crash uh, of 29, and she said, no, she was, she was busy dancing. So she came back home and um, opened up her Flora Evans School of Dance. And um, she and my dad knew each other um, growing up in high school, and um, um, for a while um, they went in different directions, and they both um, came back to uh, our um, little town in the cotton farming country and um, and uh, got married. And me and my brother Charles, who's a year older, um, came along. Um, uh, we were... Um, Depression babies, actually, if you look at your your history of population in America, the, you'd had very high birth rates, and then when most of the country was uh, poor, we had about, you know, depression, you had about 25% unemployment, and, uh, and it was even worse in the, in the, agri- in the farming areas because the price of cotton went to almost nothing. So my... Um, Folks first did the um, cotton farming, and um, my dad always wanted to make a living um, doing some kind of writing. He thought that he'd, he'd studied journalism at LSU and uh, thought that he would uh, uh, maybe be a reporter for the Baton Rouge uh, advocate of the New Orleans Times, Picky Yoon, but he uh, ended up uh, having to make a living on the cotton farm. So um, he didn't really get into writing until after um, um, the first. Um, he and my mom had first uh, gone off to get cash-paying jobs away from the farm, and the jobs were um, at the Angola State Penitentiary. And uh, um, my mom was the um, women's warden. She was in charge of all the women prisoners. My dad was in the um, pardoning and paroling um, uh, office. He was the guy that recommended to the parole board um, who to, what sentences to shorten and let people out early. So um, I spent about three years, I guess it was uh, like um, third, fourth, fifth grade um, at the um, state penitentiary. We lived um, it's an 18,000 acre prison farm and we lived inside the um, the levees and uh, not inside the actual, you know, caged prison where the prisoners were, but inside the prison farm. My parents saved their money to get back into the journalism business. They um, bought a weekly newspaper in a small town called Delhi. It was named the Delhi Dispatch. And uh, so we moved there um, when I was about in about the seventh grade. And that was my high schooling growing up in um, um, another small town. I was born in a town called Lake Province, and I grew up in Delhi for high school. One of them learning processes was um, playing football, and that's um, what I talk about in the first chapter or so of the book. It's titled um, Beat Tallulah. <laughs> it's called Beat Tallulah because Tallulah was the um, Darth Nadars of North Louisiana football, and they'd, they'd uh, gone on to play for the state championships about every year, but in the meantime, on Thanksgiving Day, they came through Delhi to, um, to give us a licking. And um, we got a new coach who was a great leader, and he taught us a lot of good stuff. His name was Raymond Richards, and uh, we ended up um, 
playing for a state championship but twice. We lost it the first time, but we won it my um, my uh, senior year. My brother and a bunch of players um, got college scholarships, um, but I was a 155-pound nose guard, and there was no market for a 155-pound nose guard in the, in the, in the college world. So um, I had to find something else important to me to do. And uh, um, you know, some of my dad um, got me a job working in the state legislature in this um, tall Capitol building um, built by Huey P. Long uh, when he was uh, the dictator of the state. And um, it's a spot I used to take uh, visitors through and uh, show them in these beautiful marble halls uh, the bullet holes where um, Huey got shot uh, in, I guess it was 1936, a couple of years after I was born. Um, and um, anyway, I learned about, you know, I kept uh, my job to disperse the bills to the House of Representatives, so I learned something about the uh, um, the lawmaking process, the governing and the um, creating of um, laws and institutions. Uh, but it's good education for me to do before I went to college. And uh, and while I was down there in Baton Rouge working for the for the house, I um, came up with a new goal. I um, realized um, how important the governor's job was, um, and so I decided um, I'm going to be governor. Since I, I can't play football, I'll do something else. I'll be governor. So I uh, got to thinking that, um, okay, if I'm going to be governor, um, I need to... Um, um, have support from all the towns and all the parishes all over the state. So uh, this, uh, I decided to go to college at Louisiana Tech, but to um, get elected freshman president and student body president and then um, get acquainted with the um, um, people in student government all over the state. It was uh, Actually, I read uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton's biographies, and um, um, I was thinking the same things they were thinking when they were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in, in Arkansas, after they came back from their college in other parts of the country, and that's what I did. That's that was what was important to me. And um, when I was um, in college, and uh, my grades were good, and um, I was um, really um, just charmed and um, and inspired by a professor who came to our, our school of business, um, and he was uh, at the time. Um, he had a he had a textbook that um, was on the desk of every CPA in America, um, and um, he was a professor from Michigan. Sort of hearing him and um, being um, sold on it by my um, by Harold Smolensky, who was my um, professor um, in the tech business school. I um, applied for and got a scholarship to University of Michigan, so to go get my MBA up there. I was there until. Um, it was time to do my my uh, military duty, so I um, enlisted in the um, National Guard. Went to, did my boot camp at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in uh, Texas. Got recruited by by IBM to to go to, go to work for them in their um, what was in their um, they called it their elect, electronic data processing. It was just at the the birth of the computer. It was. IBM had been dominant in the electric accounting machine world, the world of punch cards. The um, new technology coming out was the stored program computer, and I had a 
been fortunate enough to take the first computer course that they taught at the University of Michigan. They didn't even know what to call it. They didn't have a name for it. They called it statistics. Everything was either accounting or marketing or statistics uh, and uh, in the business school, so they called it statistics. And there wasn't anybody in the business school who knew anything about a computer, so they brought a guy from the engineering school over to teach us what it was all about, and we learned to, I learned to program uh, an early computer called the um, IBM 650, which was a magnetic drum storage. I mean, we've gone through four generations of technology from from um, vacuum tubes to transistors uh, to um, microchips, and we're in multi-generations of uh, phases of the, of the microchip now. <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to um, be in an industry um, in its infancy when I first learned the computer at Michigan and first uh, went to work for IBM to um, sell, a, sell a computing system, computing as a service. Um, for instance, we'd um, go out and contract to um, convert a company's um, payroll systems from um, either a bookkeeping machines or manual systems onto um, the computer systems and the customer would pay for it and a dollar a check or something like that and we'll do the same with other particular functions of a company there uh, accounts receivable and accounts payable functions or uh, cost accounting or whatever so I learned um, computing a little in Michigan and a whole lot in the um, service bureau part of IBM you made a point to stay on the sales side right uh, yes yes um, I had been impressed um, in uh, back in the uh, high school days um, um, by the IBM salesman who came to call them, uh, my dad to um, um, sell them a machine they had for um, the newspaper business. It was um, kind of a, a glorified electronic electric uh, typewriter that um, did the function that the newspaper needed, which was to make the the columns on the on the right side of the column make them all even up with the left side of the column, so it wasn't just run all over the page like you would on a typewritten page. So, so I had a, this guy that called. I was a, <coughs> he was a, dressed better than anybody in town dressed, other than the the, the guy who owned the bank, and and he and he, um, he drove a Cadillac. And there was only one guy in town that had a Cadillac, so I thought, well, that must be a good company to work for. <laughs> And it seems interesting because kind of the stereotype of the sales guy is, you know, more someone who'd rather go to a party than read a book. And here you are uh, kind of having an understanding of computer programming and being history buff. And, and you were able to kind of translate your style into sales. Right. Right. And, and actually, uh, the IBM sales rep that called on us, part of what I was impressed with was this was... Uh, this guy was very articulate. This was a very smart guy, and um, he not only um, 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 looked smart and able, but he um, he um, he sounded smart and able. And so uh, that was um, IBM had a real high quality sales force. Yeah, and we all know how impressive IBM was, especially back in uh, back in those days. But what was it that led you to leave IBM? Where where did you get frustrated with it? Well, um, I, I loved IBM and it was a great place, and I was learning a lot, and um, and I um, felt it was a you know good bunch of people. But um, 
I was ambitious and and I wanted to um, get to the top of the company I worked for, and um, pretty quickly. Um, um, and 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 I'd been working for them for three and a half years, and they hadn't made me a manager yet. And uh, and one of their competitors who um, called, called Honeywell uh, back then, Fortune characterized the industry as um, IBM and the Seven Dwarfs, and um, one of the dwarfs was General Electric, which is not exactly a dwarf, but another one was Honeywell. And um, they'd been in the thermostat business, and now they were going to build a computer business with this big change in technology from electric to electronic. And um, so um, because uh, IBM hadn't made me a manager, and um, Honeywell was recruiting me to be a manager who would um, start up the business for them in um, uh, Dallas and North Texas and Oklahoma, and... Um, um, hire both the sales and the technical people. And so to me, it was a big step up. Um, it wasn't about the money. I was making plenty of money. Um, and um, they did offer me more money, but um, I didn't care about the money. I cared about um, being a manager. So you got to Honeywell, and uh, and that went well. What was it then that led you to want to leave Honeywell, where you were a manager and running a successful division? Um, well, um <clears throat> As um, I spent some time with Honeywell, and uh, I began to realize that um, whether it was Honeywell or whether it was IBM, if I was part of a big organization, the route to moving to the top was to be transferred somewhere to a bigger job and then transferred somewhere else to, to a still bigger job. In fact, my um, friends at IBM were now joking that uh, IBM means I've been moved. And um, I love Dallas. I didn't want to leave Dallas. And uh, so it really came clear to me that if I wanted to keep on um, living um, in Dallas and also be able to um, move up in responsibility, then um, what I need to do was start my own company. And so you have this notion, you want to start your own company. You've never started a company before at this point. When that hits you, what's the, what was the first thing you did? Um, I learned in Michigan, uh, Peter Drucker teaches us the purpose of a company is to create and serve customers so I looked around for who could be um, who could be my customers and um, then how could I serve them and um, I was aware of other studies of uh, people trying to create a large-scale computing center in North Texas and they'd all concluded that the market wasn't big enough thought about was the way um, I didn't have any capital to spend years building it up uh, I only had a thousand bucks and I needed um, really for I finally figured out that I could, instead of a $3 million IBM machine, uh, one of their competitors, Control Data, uh, made a company that was just as good for the engineers um, as IBM's. And um, uh, it, and every, all the engineers were writing in a, in, a, in a Fortran language, which was portable from one brand of a computer to another brand. And, and all the computers, computerizing accounting systems, uh, um, once they were locked into IBM, uh, they couldn't go anywhere else. They'd have to rewrite their programs, but the, the, the business people would, but not the engineers. And so I could get engineering customers, um, um, and I could do it with a much lower-cost system by not only going to not, not IBM, but, um, but but finding a second-hand um, computer that I could buy for $600,000 instead of a million and a half. So... Um, I um, 
I found that secondhand um, computer, and I had had a had my thousand dollars saved, and so all I needed was six hundred thousand dollars. So I began to walk the streets of Dallas looking for a banker with imagination to get the rest of the the rest of my six hundred thousand. It's an interesting thing you said. Uh, finding a banker with imagination, were you able to find one? Uh, well, I um, made uh, several presentations and pitches to bankers, and got I got I got told no. Was a visit by President Kennedy and um, and uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Dallas uh, in 1963. I was uh, out looking for a banker, and I uh, decided I wanted to watch the parade since the president was coming to town. And um, so I made my appointment with um, uh, one of the bankers um, uh, at 11 o'clock, figuring I could watch the parade that was coming at 12 o'clock. And um, so I went and got my no from um, the the third largest bank in town. And um, um, then I went to to watch the parade, and um, there was a lot of people. I couldn't couldn't get close to the streets, so I went up to the third floor of the Neiman Marcus building and... um, Watch the president and the first lady come by, and um, just a few minutes later, of course, the president was assassinated from the Texas assassin was in the Texas School Book Depository. Um, so that was um, a um, really traumatic event in my earlier working life. That um, I know I went home and watched it, watched the the story of this all on TV, and um, about um, two, three days later, um, the, um, removing the assassin, there was um, Lee Harvey Oswald to uh, what they viewed as a safer place. In the meantime, uh, a guy came out of the crowd and shot him, and I realized this guy, Jack Ruby, was a fellow who'd uh, um, been in one of the same apartments I was. I used to chat with him uh, when, uh, in a couple of years earlier. Um, he used to... He had two little Jack had two little dachshunds he used to take for a walk, and I'd visit with him uh, when they were out when he was out walking the dogs. So uh, it was a a um, chattering event. But ba- basically, after a while, life goes on, and you. Uh, so I, after a while, I went back to trying to get my company started. <laughs> So you went to these bankers, and you couldn't convince the bankers, so you obviously didn't throw in the towel. What did you do after that? Yeah, well, I uh, I um, began to you know look for ways that um, I could make the, put together some kind of a package that uh, was um, bankable. And um, so I um, went to um, Sun Oil Company um, that I knew needed um, um Computing, and I um, convinced them to um, give me a five-year contract. And I took the five-year contract back to the banker, and uh, he said, "Well, boy, that that helps, but you need more than that." So, uh, um, like some cash in the bank. So I went back to the Sun guys and got them to take a better price and to prepay that contract with a quarter million dollars of cash in advance. And the uh, banker said, "Well, yeah, having cash in the bank helps, but um, you know, we're, we really need." Some other things to make it a better credit. So uh, um, I um, found a company that could, uh, didn't have any cash to put in, but that could uh, guarantee um, 
guaranteed the loan and uh, went back to the banker with a guarantee and they said, well, that looks better too, but, uh, um, you know, they're... It could still not work for some reason or another, and um, and uh, so um, they were worried about the guarantee not being good. So um, while I was pondering that, um, um, a um, guy came into my office wanting to sell me property insurance on the computer, and I said, "Well, I'd love to buy your property insurance, but I first have to get in business." And I explained my problem to him, and he said, "Oh, that's easy. All you have to do is get a bond. We do bonds. We do performance bonds for contractors." and uh, We'll give the we'll write a bond that'll give the bank a guarantee that um, um, if um, all your customers don't perform on their contract, we will. And uh, so anyway, by putting together um, those pieces and a few others, uh, I was finally able to capitalize the company with my thousand uh, dollars and um, other people's um, to add up to a total of six hundred thousand. And uh, um, part of what I had. That helped make it work was I'd gone to SMU to say um, SMU couldn't afford a big scientific computer, uh, but they had um, lots of space that, that people had given them buildings, and um, so I, I got them to um, uh, say I'll I'll house it here, and uh, uh, you can use a third of the capacity, and um, you provide the space and you provide the electricity, and um, that got my cost down, so it made it easier to to uh, pay off the other debt out of the revenues. So anyway, I had to put together really all of those elements to um, be able to get into business, to get capitalized. And, uh, and we um, started the business um, and um, just had a, operated with it for a couple of months in one year, and um, then the next year we um, did what we thought we could, and um, we had a... Had a, had a, we we had a profit, and um, um, a um, new thing that was happening was that the um, stock market started liking um, um, new companies that were in technology. Um, the Wall Street had had a little earlier love affair back in the earlier '60s when when the um, all the different um, original electronics companies were being created, and then. Um, it gone through a down phase, and and now in the late '60s, it was it was again interested in uh, new companies that could grow fast, and um, so um, we were able to uh, take the company public um, in one year and and pay off all the debt, and uh, um, and the market not only capitalized the company, but it um, it um, it loved the growth that we had, and it um, it stock doubled on the first day. And um, then the next year, um, we kept growing um, the company fast, and we were able to grow both by getting more customers and also by uh, doing a couple of small acquisitions. And so the uh, second year, the stock tripled, and um, we kept doing the same thing. And um, the third year, the stock went up 7 to 1. So that the, and the, um, the original public investors uh, in um, four years made a, 100 times their money. And... Um, that was a real fun time, and uh, having that uh, market value of um, university computing as collateral, I was able to um, um, buy a um, steakhouse company called um, Bonanza and, uh, and to um, back a guy I had met in the um, Young Presidents Organization who uh, 
Um, I thought was the best manager in the room, but uh, he'd been fired, and so he needed a future. And I backed him to um, find an oil oil refinery um, and start a company called Earth Resources, which uh, was two things. It was oil refining, and it was also um, prospects for... um, for mines, um, gold, mine, gold and silver and copper, and so. Great, and I'd love to get into those other ventures soon. But before I do, when you were before you'd IPO'd University Computing and you put up your thousand bucks, I think you'd already uh, started your family, and you had to juggle kind of making all these things happen to be in business. Were you nervous? Uh, were you, um, you know, were you just fully confident that everything would work out? You know, what was going through your mind at that period of your life? No, I, I actually, um, um, either in changing from, you know, IBM to Honeywell or moving from Honeywell to starting my own company. Um, no, I never had any fear. I never had any doubt. I just was, um, I um, felt a, you know, total faith that um, it was going to work out, <laughs> and. Uh, Things would come together, and everything that needed 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 to happen. Um, well, maybe not everything was going to happen, but whatever failures we ha- we had, we would uh, put the whole thing together and make it work. <laughs> it's a great outlook, and and so then you had a lot of success with the university computing. You got into Bonanza and Earth Resources, and they, uh, from what I read, they all had their own challenges too, right? Bonanza was a, a steakhouse business, and uh, uh, we went through um, periods of great growth, and we went through periods of huge losses. And uh, along the way, we um, um, figured out that uh, after we built a couple of hundred restaurants, that uh, the licensees were smarter at running the restaurants than um, uh, we and our own managers were. So we. Uh, um, sold all the restaurants to the licensees and just uh, worked on a royalty. And uh, we went from 5,000 employees down to 50. And uh, we uh, created the ads and the marketing stuff and um, supported the licensees who'd get the financing for the for the restaurants from their local bankers. And uh, in uh, Earth Resources, we um, found ways to... Um, reinvest in the business. Once we were forced to, um, uh, they came along with a clean-up-the-air law called, they found out originally um, lead was a, a great thing. I mean, it, Exxon was advertising, put a tiger in your tank, and the tiger was lead, and it was it was good for your car. It uh, stopped, like the engine stopped knocking and made it more peppy. But it was also, later they learned um, poison when people... Um, breathed it or when it got into the water and so you had to get the lead out which has been a huge investment for the refinery to produce um, no lead gasoline and that was um, we had to decide whether or not to um, bet our net worth on um, um, the market for unleaded gasoline because people weren't forced to uh, um, use it it was um, they could um, buy a car that ran on um, on the unleaded gasoline or not. <laughs> so anyway, it was a risk we took, and it played out well. After all those successes, you got into a dispute with the CEO that uh, that you'd backed in Earth Resources. 
Yeah, well, after we spent 12 years uh, <clears throat> building up the company and um, had a terrific uh, chief executive and um, and uh, management team and people on the board and um, but toward the um, um, as the um, oil industry prospered, basically uh, when we started, uh, oil was two dollars and eighty cents a barrel, and um, um, along twice um, world events caused the price of oil to uh, triple. Um, um, once with the um, when um, in an Israeli Arab war, the um, the um, um, Saudi and others uh, um, cut back on production, and the price of um, price of oil tripled. And then later, at the end of the 70s, the end of the decade, uh, um, the uh, Ayatollahs overthrew the Shah in Iran, and um, the price tripled again from 12 bucks to 40 bucks uh, a barrel. And so, um, by that time, we had. Um, I mean, we as the oil refiner had benefited by the rising price of uh, oil and the rising price of gasoline, but um, it was well clear to me that um, with um, that kind of a price increase, people would figure out how to get along with less, and that um, those those high profits meant that um, uh, there were going to be tougher times uh, ahead, and so um, I um, um decided it was time to sell because there were buyers for these assets that would pay um, good prices based on the, the profits as they were then. And um, But then I went to my chief executive uh, and he disagreed. Um, he said, no, we're, um, you know, we want to, we're great uh, managers of uh, this business and this is what we do. And um, so he and I agreed to disagree and then we put it to um, our seven-man board, uh, two of which were my brother Charles and me, but um, we lost the vote, um, three to four. The other directors sided with the chief executive. So then I had to think, not like a um, a, a manager and not like a board member, but like a like an owner. And I say, okay, um, when the board is wrong, what do you do? Well, the the owners have to tell the board what to do, and to do that, you got to have a stockholder vote. So we um, um, initiated a proxy fight um, since um, to um, against our own company that we had created, but uh, which we no longer control the board of. So we um, we ran a proxy fight, and um, realizing that um, the, the other the, our opponents realizing that um, they were going to lose the election, um, went out and. Made a friendly sale of the company at a at a real good price and a real good time. That's a great story. Let me uh, let me also back up to university computing. I'd love to hear more about your both your battles against AT and T and your attempt to take it over. But, but it was yeah, it was it was the online business of um, university computing that meant we um, put our you know we, we served our customers um, uh, on the in the only way, through the only vehicle, vehicle that was available, which was the uh, telephone lines, and um, um, we, um, the more we did it, we found that um, um, 
there's a better way to do it, but the phone company wasn't interested in doing it. Um, the, the phone plant was analog, which was good for voice, and we were digital people. We were computer people. So what you what was really needed to uh, uh, make the computing business grow was uh, was an all digital um, um, telephone telecommunications plant. But a tra- we had to transmit data all over the company, so we um, started a a company called Data Transmission Company, which was to uh, be a telephone company for computers. And um, uh, we uh, had a great engineer who'd been uh, named Ed Berg who uh, developed a plan for a nationwide um, digital network, uh, a switch network. And um, But it was going to take a huge amount of um, capital. Um, it would be the um, equivalent of... Um, Two, three, four billion dollars today. It was um, about four hundred million dollars then. Um, but you just do the arithmetic on the inflation, you get comparable numbers. Uh, at the time, the investment bankers. This was a boom time for technology. The investment bankers were con- were convinced that the the money could be raised um, in Wall Street. And uh, but then um, there was a crash at the um, end of the '60s, and um, Wall Street um, had gone from being willing to fund new um, technology and telecommunications companies to being not willing to do that. And uh, but um, we were optimistic; and we thought that that would be a private marketplace. So we kept on um, trying to uh, raise the capital with um, big institutions um, like the insurance and the pension funds. But um, um, in the end, I mean, to make get to the um, we weren't able to raise the company, and uh, we had to um, shut the company down when it um, hadn't been but about 10 or 20% built. Mm-hmm. And we laid off um, 300 of the smartest uh, telecommunications engineers um, in the country and shut it down um, August 26, um, 1976. Mason was going through rather trauma at that time when we were setting out to fund it. We were also firing the president for the first time, and it was a, we had a record inflation that went to about 12%, and um, we had record inflation rates and interest rates during those 70s, such as uh, we had never experienced uh, uh, before or since. Like when I try to look at um, what's happening today with the stock market dropping in half and um, all the banks uh, go invested, um, and I try to look for a comparable time. And um, in terms of my experience, um, um, it would have been the 1970s. Um, I wasn't around for the 1930s. So, tell me a little about the uh, about what it was like for you personally in the 70s after you had kind of so much uh, success. IBM, Honeywell, founding University Computing, and uh, also having good exits with uh, Earth Resources and Bonanza. What was it like being in this environment where you had to shut down uh, shut down projects after investing tens of millions of dollars into them and watch uh, watch uh, market caps of your company drop? Well, it was a, it was a tough time for me. I mean, it, is, it got from uh, being um, um, a case where it um, looked like I could I was hitting a home run every time I came up the plate. It looked like I was uh, striking out every time I came up the plate, and uh, um, and I was um, watching the values of um, 
the public companies I'd created uh, just uh, shriveled down tremendously. So um, um, it it, um, it it wasn't a ma matter of being less wealthy because um, I, I never figured I needed anything but a house and a car. And I, but it was um, really a matter of not being able to make things work. Um, and uh, so it was, um, yeah, it was a hard time. It was a tough time. And um, it was a time also to, um, of learning and um, learning that um, sometimes things don't work. And um, you just got to take your losses and get up and um, move on. <laughs> so did it cause you to change your style or do anything differently? Or was this just a failure and you keep getting up to bat after that? I, re I really didn't. I really didn't change. I really didn't change um, what I was doing. Um, um, you know, from before the the really hard times to to during the hard times, I had to I, I had to learn that uh, um, sometimes um, things weren't just weren't um, weren't capitalizable, and um, that um, um, that. Um, and it was also a big lesson, you know. I mean, different decades are good for different industries, and and uh, the decade that was, uh, you know, the '60s had just like the later 1990s. They loved, you know, the markets and uh, the private bankers loved everything um, about technology, and um, they really didn't uh, when we they really didn't care anything about oil refiners um, when we started them. Um, the oil refining business, nobody nobody liked them. But of course, with the um, during the during the seventies, they started loving them, just like the great investments today. So, um, yeah, I, I learned. I, I guess I had um, some good macroeconomics lessons, and I am um, actually part of it was uh, um, um, learning to not just focus on, uh, call it the, the microeconomic level, the specific company of a specific uh, business, but also to, to understand the, the um, not just the national, but the global uh, macroeconomics of it. That's interesting. So when you, when you think about opportunities then and now, do you just examine the opportunity or do you think, hey, is the market hot for this now? Do I think the market will change in a few years? You try to make those kind of macro speculations, which, you know, when they work are great, but are kind of a little bit out of your control in terms of knowing where things will turn? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, um, I mean, that's, uh, um, I'm really not out starting companies today. <laughs> um, I have an entrepreneurial company that we've started from scratch uh, called Green Mountain Energy, but it's, um, it's not, it's not a public company, it's private, and it's a partnership I have, um, we own about half of it, and um, British Petroleum owns about a quarter, and um, Nuon, which is the um, biggest electric utility in, in Holland, owns about a quarter of it. Um, it's, um, you know, it's um, it's in the monopoly-busting business, just like we were going up against the telephone monopoly, or earlier going up against the IBM monopoly. So it's kind of my third time around in monopoly-busting, but this time the uh, the monopolies are not uh, nationwide. They're um, uh, they were locally granted. The states, um, you know, granted local electricity companies that, that um, were, were were monopolies until um, this big deregulation movement came along about um, um, ten or fifteen years ago. 
And um, so um, we ended up um, um, actually trying first. California was the first to deregulate. We tried to um, get going out there, and um, um, after we got started, um, the lawmakers in Sacramento changed their minds and ended up uh, being a very not a good place, and so we lost lost a lot of money and left California. And same story in uh, Pennsylvania. That happened, but it turned out that um, Texas was the only state that wrote a really free market um, electricity deregulation law, and we've done real, real well here, and are doing well now. It's probably the most Fremont's probably the most successful green company um, in America. You now see a huge movement uh, toward um, um, interest in um, clean air for the world, clean air through clean uh, clean energy, and. Um, it's um, we're seeing it big time in the um, you know in the new government going in in Washington, so um, it's um, I think it's it's a it's a great business and it's going to be a great industry. One one story I'd love to ask you about is how you were able to acquire a larger company, Infomatics, uh, while you were running after you'd started Sterling Software, so you had a, a smaller company. And acquired a larger company. How do you do that? Um, well, we we use the public markets to um, um, to be able to do that. I mean, we had to um, we we, um, we, we took um, Sterling um, public, um, and we actually um, had optioned taken options on on a couple of companies that we um, paid for with. You know, mostly out of the proceeds of the public offering, and then we um, we looked at um, where else in the software industry can we grow. And um, one of the um, biggest uh, three or four companies was uh, was Informatics, and um, um, essentially the what enabled us. I mean, we were a twenty million dollar year revenue company, able to buy out a two hundred million dollar year revenue company was. Um, um, the junk bond market that had been created by uh, Mike Milken and his team um, um, during the um, during the 1980s, and um, we um, were um, because um, we could analyze informatics and look at all the pieces of it and see that um, um, we could um, sell off and um, things that were not a fit with our software products. Uh, uh, strategic focus and pay down debt that um, we would incur in buying the whole thing, and so we basically calculated what we could uh, what we could get for the pieces we didn't want, and figure out that we could end up with the software part that we really wanted um, at a bargain price, and if we had good luck, at um, basically no net cost to us. So we um, um, with um, with commitment from Drexel. Um, Drexel Burnham, which was Mike Milken's um, investment bank, um, we were able to um, make a cash tender offer that was um, 30% above the market price of the stock and uh, buy it out for cash and then merge it together with Sterling. And as, you, uh, as you've kind of gone through your career, you've had a lot of ideas like this where there are these, I think as you describe it, these bold and audacious ideas, you know, be it to um, 
be it to go after AT&T or go after IBM or acquire a company larger than your own. When you're kind of having these ideas, I guess the the tough part must be that you tell it to most people and they they don't believe it can be done. How do you kind of go about nurturing these ideas and kind of figuring out which ideas are good and which ideas are bad and knowing where to act? I've talked about some ideas that uh, that worked, and um, but there were ideas that uh, didn't work. So maybe I could answer that question with an example. Um, after we had um, acquired informatics um, and basically we acquired a company that was 10 times bigger than us, and then we uh, saw another one called Control Data that was 10 times bigger than we were after we had bought informatics. We were a $20 million company. They bought a $200 million year company, and then we were a $200 million year company um, looking at a $2 billion a year company. And um, I um, um, went through a, you know, a deep analytical process with a lot of um, you know, people that understood the different businesses, um, and there were about 10 different businesses, and we needed to um, estimate values on every one of them and, and um, think about how we could um, borrow the money and buy it and pay it off. And um, when we started, the um, price of the stock was in the um, you know, $15, $18 range, and we started buying stock and uh, bought about 4.9% uh, because uh, you could buy up to 4 if you cross five percent, you had to make a public disclosure that you were you just had done that, and uh, this would draw the speculators into the market who would who would bid the price up. So um, you didn't want to do that before you were ready to uh, cash tender offer for the for the whole thing, or at least a majority of it. So um, um, while we were working on it, um, this was uh, 1987. Um, the um, price just started moving up, and um, and um, um, the price of money when we started, the price of money of the bond money would, was going to be thirteen percent. That sounds like a a lot now, but um, we paid as much as seventeen percent for informatics, and then later paid it all off um, a year later with a, a lot cheaper money. But anyway, it was going to cost us thirteen percent. But as I as the weeks went by, the price of money went up to about 16%, and the price of the stock went up from uh, being in the in the 15 to 18 range to being in the 30s range, and it uh, um, just didn't work. So uh, I just uh, dropped the whole thing, gave up after working on it for six months, and um, went to a holiday in Italy for three weeks. And um, when I came back, um, I stopped in... New York to talk to a lot of software analysts, and I noticed that um, as we visited, um, their faces were turning white, and what was happening was um, the technology stocks were um, beginning to um, decline uh, severely, and um, that was on a Thursday and Friday, and uh, next Monday was turned out to be Black Monday, where the stock market dropped uh, about 22% in one day. Um, so, um, what happened was, um, I failed to, um, be able to buy the, um, $2 billion company, but it was, a it was a lucky failure because I would have been hung with all that 
cost and debt at a time that mm, all these assets were uh, re- <clears throat> repriced. They were cut in half, uh, just like the market just uh, cut everything in half, um, you know, starting um, a few weeks ago during the month of September and October of, of this year. So sometimes it's good to be lucky. Sometimes it's good to be lucky. Sometimes it's uh, it's sometimes failure is good. <laughs> sometimes failure is a real blessing. <laughs> Tell me a little about your relationship with your brother Charles. You've uh, you have you done all your ventures with him or, or most of them? I've done them. You know, most of them, substantially all of them with Charles. There's a few things that uh, he's done separately, and there's a few things I've done separately. But mostly we've done everything together, and. Uh, and that's kind of a lifetime story. I mean, we um, we um, grew up. He's a he's a year older. We grew up, uh, you know, just a year apart. But we we did things together. We went to <clears throat> we played together. We went went to school together. We um, played football together. We um, um, went to college at the same college. Uh, we just uh, we just uh, um, and um, um. He went to work for IBM, and I went on to graduate school. But then I went to work for IBM, and then the, um, um, <clears throat> I went went to work for Honeywell. But then, when I started the company, the first thing I did was just to invite Charles to come in and and help me start it. So, how do you divide up responsibility with your brother? Like, what do you do? What does he do uh, when you were running these companies? Well, we've done we've done different things in different years. Um, 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 just um, um, kind of like he's um, done the things that he likes to do, and I've done the things that I like to do, and it turned out that uh, kind of the sum of them added up um, to be productive. How would you describe your style? So, when you were running these businesses, and sometimes you were in several ventures at one time. How did you? How hands-on were you? I mean, I'm sure it changes, but in terms of you know when you work with your um, your team, what would you say your role is, and you know what you did on a daily basis to kind of keep people inspired and moving in the right direction? Yeah, well, I'm I'm um, always been the more um, conceptual type, the more um, opportunity focused guy, and um, um, there've been times when I've had to make the the um, Detailed pieces work, and 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 I can do that, but um, it's not the thing that I have the the most fun at. So, um, 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 and 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 Charles is very deliberative, and and um, um, plan your work, work your plan, um, um, type. So that's that's sort of been his contribution, and we've always had. I mean, it's never been just. You know, we, we've always uh, brought into any company the. Um, Every company we've created, we've we've uh, also um, very quickly or uh, from the outset had a, had a leader who was going to be um, the chief executive. Neither one of us were ever going to be the chief executive, other than just at the very beginning when we were creating um, the first company. Do you ever disagree with him? We we rarely disagree. I just. Um, we basically, we basically think along the same ways. We we have the same set of values, and um, we we um, tend to see things the same way. You know. How is it that you realize that you should be bringing in CEOs? A lot of entrepreneurs just want to run everything throughout the life of the company. I've always figured there's um, 
somebody around that um, knows how to do a job better than I know how to do it. And uh, it's my job to, uh, you know, get get somebody who can manage the manage things better than me. Um, you know, get him into the company. Going back to one of your uh, very early ambitions, you said you wanted to be governor. As far as I know, you haven't you haven't hit that one yet, but you've uh, you've contributed a lot to politics. Have you ever thought about going into that, or what? How did your relationship with politics evolve? Oh, well, when I was when I was when I was uh, yeah when I was very young, I I, I thought about it, but uh, um, I um, really decided um, I enjoyed um, the you know the work of the entrepreneur and the work of the investor more than um, the work of um, someone um, you know running a state or or, or what have you or Making laws in a senator, uh, just um, well, actually, I guess it's part of it is uh, you, you know when you when you actually examine um, what's the daily life of uh, these different activities. Uh, what do you, what do you enjoy doing? And it's um, you know there came a time when I figured this is um, not the work I want to do. I want to see good people doing it, <laughs> but um, not for me. And so you'd supported uh, you'd supported the Bushes, um, both of them, and then you'd also supported a number of other things. Mentioned Planned Parenthood and a lot of green initiatives. This race, you uh, you'd sat out. I'd saw you said in several interviews you don't have a horse in this race. But now that it's over and Barack Obama's won, what are your what are your thoughts on the political landscape out there and what the country should be doing? Well, my well, my comparison is back to um, who's the first guy I, I backed for president, and and he was a guy named Chuck Percy, and he was a um, um, he was a Republican version of Barack Obama, and instead of being uh, in two thousand and eight, he was back in um, you know forty years ago, and um, uh, because um, you know I was born a Democrat, everybody in Louisiana was born was a Democrat then, but the um, um, I just had met Percy. He was uh, we were both in the Young Presidents Organization, and uh, he wanted to. Um, he'd been elected. Um, uh, well, actually, he'd been elected. I guess um, senator from Illinois. He'd run and lost as governor, and um, I. Um, he said he wanted to be get nominated president. So um, that's what got me. Um, he. Um, I said, "How can I help?" He said, "You." Um, become a Republican delegate from Texas and go to the national convention and vote for me. So that's what I set out to do. And uh, by the time the convention got there, uh, Percy didn't have a chance, so I ended up backing um, Nixon. Um, and that's really um, what got me, um, you know, into that political activity. Um, nothing um, I've done since, um, you know, I had the backing of the personality type thing that I did you know, the original. Um, coming up to the beginning, um, um, the um, Barack Obamas are a lot like Chuck, Chuck Percy, <laughs> and it happens to be from the same state. And um, um, I backed him when he was uh, running for the nomination. I, actually, it's the first time I voted in a Democratic primary, but I voted in a Texas Democratic primary then. Um, and... Um, um, same way voting, um, you know, voting for president once he got nominated. So um, 
I think he'll, I think he'll, I think, um, um, you know, he'll bring in good people and um, be a good president. So after all this success that you've had with your ventures, what's it like now being a billionaire? How does, you know, what is life like on a day-to-day basis once you've made your fortune? Uh, it's really no different. Um, I am, you know, people drive cars. I drive a car. People live in the house. I live in the same house I've been living in for 40 years. <laughs> um, it's, um, I, I say the only difference uh, in, in um, my lifestyle is that um, I got my own jet plane and I can um, go anywhere I want to. Basically, I don't like to travel a lot, so I don't, I don't use it a whole lot. But that would be the only real difference um, between um, working for, you know, my first job out of college and um, my second one or early ones. Um, I, I think um, there's not much difference in having a whole lot of money and having um, enough. I don't know where, where, where the enough would be, uh, but um, there's... Um, Millions of Americans that um, have roughly the same kind of lifestyle I do, other than um, I own a private jet. <laughs> what was your motivation in writing uh, in writing your book, and um, what were you trying to accomplish with it? Just I'm a storyteller, telling my stories, and I'm just doing in the book form what I've done all my life in terms of telling stories to people. Just kind of I I enjoy the the job of being a storyteller. Great. And what's, uh, before this is a great interview, I really thank you for doing it. Before I let you go, do you have, do you have any kind of, um, advice for aspiring or current entrepreneurs out there trying to make their ventures work? I've never been, um, big on giving advice to people. I think people mostly got to figure things out for themselves. And, uh, um, but, um, I think um, if you um, if you read my book um, and, and look for um, some characteristic that um, is common, it's, uh, it's it's persistence. It's sticking with the the idea and um, and um, not um, letting um, um, a failure in one way sort of get in the way of making um, something like that. Um, that work, I think, um, persistence and perseverance and um, sticking with it um, when you know you've got a right idea, when you know you've got a good idea to, to make, you know, make that idea um, come into being. Well, Sam, thanks so much for coming on my show. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's been my pleasure. So I wish you all good luck. <laughs> Thanks again to FreshBooks for sponsoring this show and making it possible. Go to VentureVoice.com and click on the FreshBooks link to find out more about how to get $20 off online invoicing. Thanks for listening to VentureVoice. For links to anything mentioned in this show, including Sam's book, make sure you go to VentureVoice.com. There you can also interact with me, other listeners, and sometimes even guests by leaving a comment. Often guests will come back and respond to your questions and thoughts. We're launching a few other features on VentureVoice.com, so please come take a look, check it out. If you're not subscribed to the show, you can subscribe through iTunes, either by searching for us on iTunes or clicking the link off the show. 
or signing up for our email list where we'll notify you whenever there's a new show. Thanks again for listening. I'd like to thank my associate producer, Eddie Lebaton, who put this show together for you. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners who've sent in lots of great feedback and encouragement. Keep it coming. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.